Chapter 25 of Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. Translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter 25 An Unexpected Accomplice. Gurn was walking nervously up and down in his cell after this interview when the door was pushed open and the cheery face of the warder Nibbet looked in. "'Evening, Gurn,' he said. "'It's six o'clock, and the restaurant-keeper opposite wants to know if he is to send your dinner in to you.' "'No,' Gurn growled. "'I'll have the prison ordinary.' "'Oh, ho!' said the warder. "'Fun's low, eh? "'Of course it's not for you to despise our dietary, but still, government beans.' He came further into the cell, ignoring Gurn's impatient preference for his room to his company, and said in a low tone, "'There. Take that.' and thrust a banknote into the hand of the dumbfounded prisoner. And if you want any more, they will be forthcoming, he added. He made a sign to Gurn to say nothing, and went to the door. I'll be back in a few minutes. I'll just go and order a decent dinner for you. Gurn felt as if a tremendous weight had been lifted from him. The cell seemed larger, the prison walls less high. He had an intuition that Lady Beltham was not deserting him. He had never doubted the sincerity of her feelings for him, but he quite realized how a woman in her delicate position might feel embarrassed in trying to intervene in favor of any prisoner, and much more so in the case of one whom the entire world believed to be the single-handed murderer of her husband. But now Lady Beltham had intervened. She had succeeded in communicating with him through the medium of the warder, and almost certainly she would do much more. The door opened again, and the warder entered carrying a long rush basket containing several dishes and a bottle of wine. "'Well, Gurn, that's a more agreeable sort of dinner, eh?' "'Gad, I wanted it after all,' said the murderer with a smile. "'It was a good idea of yours, Monsieur Nibet, to insist on my getting my dinner sent in from outside.' Nibet winked. He appreciated his prisoner's tact. Obviously he was not one to make untimely allusions to the warder's breach of discipline in conveying money to him so simply but so very irregularly. As he ate, Gurn chatted with Nibet. "'I suppose it is you who will get Siegenthal's place?' "'Yes,' said Nibet, sipping the wine Gurn had offered him. "'I have asked for the berth no end of times, but it never came. I was always told to wait, because the place was not free, and another berth must be found first for Siegenthal, who is my senior. But the old beast would never make any application. However, three days ago, I was sent for to the ministry, and one of the staff told me that someone in the embassy, or the government, or somewhere, was taking an interest in me, and they asked me a lot of questions, and I told them all about it. And then, all of a sudden, Siegenthal gets promoted to Poisse, and I was given his billet here. Gurn nodded. He saw a light. And what about the money? That's stranger still, but I understood all the same. A lady met me in the street the other night and spoke to me by name. We had a chat there on the pavement, for the street was empty, and she shoved some banknotes into my hand, not just one or two, but a great bunch, and she told me that she was interested in me, in you, and that if things turned out as she wished, there were plenty more banknotes where those came from. While the warder was talking, Gurn watched him carefully. The murderer was an experienced reader of character and faces, and he speedily realized that his lady's choice had fallen on an excellent object. Thick lips, 
a narrow forehead, and prominent cheekbones suggested a material nature that would hesitate at nothing which would satisfy his carnal appetites. So Gurn decided that further circumlocution was so much waste of time, and that he might safely come to the point. He laid his hand familiarly on the warder's shoulder. "'I'm getting sick of being here,' he remarked. "'I dare say,' the warder answered uneasily. "'But you must be guided by reason. Time is going on, and things arrange themselves.' They do when you help them, Gurn said peremptorily, and you and I are going to help them. That remains to be seen, said the warder. Of course, everything has got to be paid for, Gurn went on. One can't expect a warder to risk his situation merely to help a prisoner to escape. He smiled as the warder made an exclamation of nervous warning. Don't be frightened, Abay. We're not going to play any fool games, but let us talk seriously. Of course you have another appointment with the worthy lady who gave you that money. I am to meet her tonight at eleven, in the boulevard Arago, Nabe said after a moment's hesitation. Good, said Gurn. Well, you are to tell her that I must have ten thousand francs. What? exclaimed the man in utter astonishment, but his eyes shone with greed. Ten thousand francs, Gurn repeated calmly, and by tomorrow morning, fifteen hundred of those are for you, I will go away tomorrow evening. There was a tense silence. The warder seemed doubtful, and Gurn turned the whole of his willpower upon him to persuade him. Suppose they suspect me, said Nabe. Idiot, Gurn retorted. All you will do will be to make a slip in your duty. I don't want you to be an accomplice. Listen, there will be another five thousand francs for you, and if things turn out awkwardly for you, all you will have to do will be to go across to England and live there comfortably for the rest of your days. The warder was obviously almost ready to comply. Who will guarantee me, he asked. The lady. I tell you, the lady of the Boulevard Arago. Here, give her this. And he tore a leaf out of his pocketbook, and scribbling a few words on it, handed it to Nabe. Well, said the warder hesitantly, I don't say no. You've got to say yes, Gurn retorted. The two looked steadily in each other's eyes. Then the warder blanched. Yes, he said. Nabe was going away, and was already almost in the corridor when Gurn calmly called him back. You will evolve a plan, and I will start tomorrow. Don't forget to bring me a timetable. The Orleans Company timetable will do. The murderer was not disappointed in his expectations. The next morning Nabe appeared with a mysterious face and eager eyes. He took a small bundle from underneath his jersey and gave it to Gurn. Hide that in your bed, he said, and Gurn obeyed. The morning passed without further developments. Numerous warders came and went in the corridor, attending to the prisoners, and Gurn could get no private talk with Nabe, who contrived, however, to come into his cell several times on various pretexts, and assure him with a nod or a word that all was going well. But presently, when walking in the exercise yard, the two men were able to have a conversation. Nabe manifested an intelligence of which his outer appearance gave no indication, but it seems to be an established fact that the inventive faculties, even of men of inferior mental quality, are sharpened when they are engaged in mischief. For the last three weeks, he said, about a score of masons have been working in the prison, repairing the roof and doing up some of the cells. Cell number 129, the one next yours, is empty and there are no bars on the window. 
The masons go through that cell and that window to get on to the roof. They knock off work soon after six o'clock. The gatekeeper knows them all, but he does not always look closely at their faces when they go by, and you might be able to go out with them. In the bundle that I gave you there is a pair of workman's trousers and a waistcoat and a felt hat. Put those on. At about a quarter to six, the men who went up onto the roof through the cell come down by way of the skylights to the staircase that leads to the clerk's office, past the office where they are asked no questions, cross the two yards and go out by the main gate. I will open the door of your cell a few minutes before six, and you must go into the empty cell next yours, slip up onto the roof, and take care to hide behind the chimney stacks until the men have done work. Let them go down in front of you, and follow behind with a pick or a shovel on your shoulder, and when you are passing the clerk, or anywhere where you might be observed, mind you let the men go a yard or two in front of you. When the gate is just being shut after that last workman, call out quietly, but as naturally as you can, Hold on, Monsieur Moran. Mind you don't lock me in. I'm not one of your lodgers. Let me out after my mates. Make some joke of that sort, and when you are once outside the gate, by George, my boy, you'll have to vamoose. Gurn listened attentively to the warder's instructions. Lady Beltham must indeed have been generous and have made the man perfectly easy on the score of his own future. In one of the pockets of the clothes, Nebay went on, I have put ten hundred-franc notes. You asked for more, but I could not raise it. We can settle that some other time. Gurn made no comment. When will my escape be discovered, he asked. I'm on night duty, the warder answered. Arrange your clothes on your bed to make it look as if you were in bed, and then they will think I might have been deceived. I go off duty at five. The next round is at eight. My mate will open the door of the cage, and by that time you will be miles away. Gurn nodded comprehension. Time did not permit of longer conversation. The bell had rung some minutes ago, proclaiming that the exercise time was over. The two men hurried upstairs to cell number 127 on the third floor, and the prisoner was locked in alone while Nebay went about his duty as usual. End of chapter 25 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com